This episode contains some explicit language as well as descriptions of violence and drug use. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Anatomy of a Verse, the podcast that examines rap music and hip-hop culture one verse at a time. Today's episode will focus on the third and final verse of the song, One Love by Nas. We're going to dive into the simple but powerful story that makes up this verse and analyze its meaning in the context of the song's overall message. And in the process of doing this, we're going to uncover what has made this album, Illmatic, such a poignant and powerful depiction of New York City in the early 1990s. Nasir Jones was just 18 years old when his best friend Will was shot and killed in front of his apartment building in Queens, New York. Nasir's brother, Jabari, was also shot twice, but survived. He looked back, he was on a bike, he looked back, he was like, man, fuck these niggas, son, I ain't running from nobody. I was like, all right, fuck it. So the niggas came over there, they just pulled out, blam it, you know what I'm saying? They hit Will up in his back. The bitch-ass nigga shot him in his back. But I just took one in the leg, boom, a little scrape on the shoulder, boom. And I was, I didn't even feel that shit. I was so young and my adrenaline was pumping. My man died, I didn't even feel, I was still walking around like, oh, shit. Niggas like, yo, son, you hit, you know what I'm saying? After that, I was turned out. Guns every day, I was not playing. Anybody come through, I was ready to shoot them. For no reason, anything. I was bucking niggas, everything. You know what I'm saying? Nasir and Will grew up very close, listening to hip hop and making music together, calling themselves Ill Will and Nasty Nas. Will's death had a traumatizing effect on Nasir, who had already been getting significant attention around New York City's growing hip hop scene, especially in Queens. Although he hadn't released a full album yet, the rapper known as Nasty Nas had earned a reputation for what were then considered very graphic but imaginative lyrics. This is Nas, kid, you know how it runs. I'm waving automatic guns at nuns. Sticking up the preachers in the church. I'm a stone crook, serial killer who works by the phone book. For you, I got a lot to shoot songs in here. My rhymes are hotter than a prostitute with gonorrhea. But after Ill Will's death, Nas changed. He began approaching his music with a deeper purpose that went beyond lyrics that were just clever or shocking. And for the next two years, he worked tirelessly on what would eventually become his debut album, 1994's hip-hop classic, Illmatic. Yeah, yeah. And yo, Black, it's time. Word. Word, it's time, man. It's time, man. All right, Yeah. Straight out the fucking dungeons of rap. Well, fake niggas don't make it back. I don't know how to start this. 
Rappers are monkey flipping with the funky rhythm. I be kicking, musician, inflicting composition of pain. I'm like Scarface sniffing cocaine, holding the M16. See with the pen, I'm extreme. Now, upon its release, Illmatic sent shockwaves through the New York City hip hop scene, and for a few different reasons. For one, Nas had managed to get four of the most respected New York producers to give him beats for the album. Also, his delivery was smooth and fluid. He seemed noticeably more mature than on his earlier material, often rapping from the perspective of someone older than himself. So now I'm jetting to the building lobby, and it was full of children, probably couldn't see as high as I be. It's like the game ain't the same. Got younger niggas pulling the triggers, bringing fame to their name and claims. But looking back 26 years later, there's one thing that makes this album a truly special and perhaps even historic achievement. And it has to do with something that lives within all nine of Illmatic's songs. Something that binds them all together. If you listen to the last episode of this podcast, you may remember the story of how hip-hop culture emerged within the South Bronx during a disastrous period of crime and chaos. Well, as it turns out, something very similar would happen about a decade later in another New York City neighborhood, the public housing complex known as Queensbridge. The Queensbridge housing projects were constructed in 1939 as part of a huge wave of government-funded housing toward the end of the Great Depression. The projects were designed to be stepping stones from poverty to middle class, along with other assistance programs like the GI Bill of 1944 which gave millions of dollars to returning veterans so they could buy houses in the newly booming suburbs. And throughout the 40s and 50s, it all seemed to be working as planned. But by the early 60s, it became apparent that these stepping stones were not working the same way for everyone. Black New Yorkers were largely being denied access to these new opportunities. And essentially, they were blocked from entering the rapidly growing middle class. And at the same time, black families from the South were moving north to escape Jim Crow. Also, there was an increasing concentration of Cuban and Puerto Rican immigrants coming to New York City. So all of these factors in combination resulted in what would come to be known as white flight. And as the minority population went up in the projects, public investment went down. When Ronald Reagan became president in 1981, he cut funding to the projects by more than half. And this paved the way for the city's darkest chapter. This is the typical tiny bottle for the new illegal drug of choice in America, crack. Vials like this one are turning up empty and discarded in the streets, in the parks, in the schoolyards around the nation. And many of the people who use crack are turning up with blown minds and blown bank accounts and worse. Crack cocaine completely changed life in the projects. And not just because of negative health effects. The playgrounds and courtyards where, at one time, parents were fined if their children stepped on the grass, had now transformed into a sprawling open-air black market where random acts of violence were commonplace. Kids stopped going to school, choosing instead to make money selling crack on the streets. Violent crimes surged to never-before-seen heights. The New York City Police Department, 
unable to target top drug dealers, instead made thousands of low-level arrests, crowding the prison system and adding further devastation to the communities. And it is in the middle of all of this that the Queensbridge Houses, known as QB or The Bridge for short, were transforming into New York City's second epicenter of hip-hop. The Queensbridge Houses are the largest public housing complex in the Western Hemisphere. Housing nearly 7,000 residents, the buildings have a unique and distinct double Y shape, designed specifically to provide maximum amounts of sunlight and privacy to its residents, along with a 20-acre park overlooking the East River. Ironically, all of these things made QB the perfect hotbed for both large-scale drug dealing operations and the growing cultural movement known as hip-hop. Here's a clip from another Queensbridge MC, Tragedy Gaddafi, recalling the park jams of the mid-80s. And for me, like, this was a big deal. This was my introduction to hip-hop, my introduction to, like, a show. Because if you could rock it here with this crowd, again, this is Queensbridge Housing Projects, 96 buildings, six floors, six blocks, one of the biggest housing projects in the entire world. And, you know, not for nothing, if you, can, if you can please and satisfy and rock this crowd, you know, you, you would gain the confidence as an MC to rock any crowd. And this was the environment that raised Nasir Jones from a quiet and introspective child with a profound love for music and poetry into one of hip-hop's most gifted storytellers, coming of age surrounded by drugs, crime, and the murder of his best friend. So with all this in mind, Let's take a look at track seven from Illmatic, the song One Love. Word is born, you got six minutes on that jack kid, or shit is real. Hey, yo, hey, yo, hey, yo, hey, yo, hey, yo, check this shit out, man. Hey, yo, go, give me a cigarette, man. Yo, here you go, here you go, here you go. Yo, check it out, man. Check out what I got here, man. What is that? What's that? Yo, it's a letter I got from my man Nas, man. We're going to focus mainly on the third and final verse of this song. But in order to understand that, we need to start with a brief synopsis of the first two verses, which are each wrapped in the form of letters being written from Nas to two of his friends in prison. What up, kid? I know shit is rough doing your bit. When the cops came, you should have slid to my crib. Fuck it, black, no time for looking back is done. Plus, congratulations, you know you got a son. In this first letter, Nas congratulates his friend on his newborn son but also laments the fact that the child's mother seems to be unfaithful and uninterested in preserving their relationship. He also mentions the accidental death of a friend's niece and the increasingly young age at which children are being lured into the criminal underworld. The main takeaway from this verse is something that we've already touched on. How mass incarceration during the crack years had huge unintended consequences, tearing families apart and forcing children to grow up without parents or role models. The second verse, or second letter, I should say, is written to someone that worked on the corners with Nas, selling drugs. Nas tells his friend that an enemy is essentially trying to take his job. 
Check out the story yesterday when I was walking. That nigga just shot last year, try to appear like he hurt something. Word him up, I heard him fronting. And he be pumping on your block. Your man gave him your block, and now they run together. What up, son? Whatever. He then goes on to mention that he heard his friend had been transferred to the Elmira Correctional Facility, a supermax prison known for ruthless violence between inmates. He warns his friend to be extra careful in this new environment and to stay safe until he gets home. As the letter continues, Nas tells his friend that he's been in touch with his family and encourages him to stay strong mentally. Whereas the first verse talks about how mass incarceration negatively affects communities, the second verse focuses more on its negative effects on inmates, showing that prisons fail to actually correct the behavior of criminals, and instead only serve to make them more ruthless. Furthermore, we know that this friend will eventually be released, and when he does, he'll have no choice but to return to a life of crime, now only made tougher and smarter by the system that was supposed to rehabilitate him. Which brings us to the main event, verse 3. Now, before I begin the synopsis, I should mention that this verse contains a lot of references to smoking marijuana and a lot of slang terminology that some listeners may be unfamiliar with. So, let's get that out of the way here. Buddha is one of Nas's favorite nicknames for marijuana. It probably originates from its similarity to the word bud, and also from the fact that marijuana often makes you feel calm and enlightened. A blunt is a hollowed-out cigar in which the tobacco is replaced with marijuana. The two most popular brands of cigars used in blunts are Phillies and El Producto, or L for short. At one point in the story, Nas describes an extra-long super blunt called an Uwap, which is made by rolling two regular Phillies blunts together for double the length. Okay. So, the story begins with Nas smoking some Buddha, while thinking deeply about how the social institutions that were supposed to raise him, like schools and the church, have ultimately failed to prepare him for the reality of life in the streets. Sometimes I sit back with a Buddha sack, minds in another world, thinking how could we exist through the facts, written in school textbooks, Bibles, etc. Fuck a school lecture, the lies get me vexed up. So Here's another clip of Nas's brother, Jabari. You may remember him from the beginning of the episode. Here he describes what it was like for him to walk to school. I used to be going this way trying to go to school and shit. And see all of that. Early in the morning, somebody gets shot, all kinds of shit. It was less police, so shit was real. I had to go to junior high school 204. That shit was like Rikers Island. That shit was like jail. It was junior high school. Notice the comparison to Rikers Island, New York City's main prison complex. Now, we know that the schools failed Nas and Jabari because of systematic long-term disinvestment 
which led to poverty and fewer taxpayer dollars for the schools. But crucially, Nas doesn't know this, or at least he doesn't let on that he knows it. All he's doing here is identifying a blatant disconnect between his reality and the reality that the public school system is willing to accept. And this, of course, is very similar to the disconnect between the original intended purpose of the Queensbridge houses and the vastly different purpose they would eventually come to serve in the 90s. This realization makes Nas angry and confused, forcing him to take a break from his normal routine and find solace somewhere away from the city. He even leaves his phone and his 9mm handgun at home, so he can focus on writing rhymes, smoking some L's, and getting some much-needed sleep. The lives get me vexed up, so I be ghost for my projects. I take my pen and pad for the weekend, hitting nails while I'm sleeping. A two-day stay, you may say I needed time alone to relax my dome. No phone left and not at home. Lack of sleep is a theme that shows up in nearly every song on Illmatic. It is the most obvious symptom of emotional stress and constant alertness. Nas feels trapped because he understands that the only escape from this conflict would come in the form of a mental institution like Bellevue Hospital, or an eight to 10 year sentence at a maximum security prison, like the notorious House of Detention for Men, or HDM, located on Rikers Island. You see the streets had me stressed something terrible Fucking with the corners, have a nigga up in Bellevue at HDM Hit with numbers from 8 to 10 A future in a maximum state pen It's grim, so I come And Nas has made it clear leading up to this point that hospitals and prisons, like other public institutions, are not designed to help people like him. When he returns to the projects, it's late at night and he sees a young child outside smoking a huge blunt. Let's call this child Shorty. Shorty tells Nas that he fears for his life after being spotted while shooting at someone from a rooftop. And now he carries with him a black Trey Deuce or 32 caliber pistol. So I comes back home. Nobody's up with Shorty Doo Wop. Rolling two Phillies together in the bridge. We call him Oops. He said Nas. Niggas Kobe busting off the roof. So I wear a bulletproof and pack a black Trey Deuce. Nas examines Shorty and his mannerisms. And he begins to realize that he's in a position to offer some advice. It is here that Nas also realizes that Shorty is a drug dealer and that this bench is the spot where he posts up regularly to pump his loose cracks or to sell small quantities of crack cocaine. Shorty, of course, represents the corruption of youth in Queensbridge. But notice that Nas doesn't shame or chastise Shorty, as we might expect. Instead, when Shorty offers Nas his blunt, Nas accepts, and they continue talking as it becomes more and more clear that Shorty has experienced things that no one of his age should have to experience. He says, cause when the pistol blows, the one that's murdered be the cool one. Nas is warning Shorty not to let his enemies fool him into killing indiscriminately, because murder victims often become martyrs, and martyrs can make life very difficult. He tells Shorty that if he wants to kill someone, he should be careful and calculated, 
waiting until his target is somewhere alone, rather than shooting in large crowds where innocent bystanders could easily be shot. Let's take a moment here to notice how Nas has been switching between past and present tense throughout this entire verse. I'll play these bars again, and this time, notice how the line, coulda caught your man but didn't look when you bucked up, is the only part of the verse in past tense. It shifts our focus from a large-scale, systematic problem to an up-close and personal problem that we can clearly envision. Lines like these are also the reason why Illmatic is, more than anything, painfully honest. Nas is admitting what often gets swept under the rug in gangster rap. The fact that street crime contributes heavily to the deterioration of families and communities. But in his advice, Nas isn't telling Shorty to put the guns away and go to school. Because, for one, as we've already established, that isn't an option. But also because, as it turns out, Shorty is only 12 years old, nowhere close to the age at which we would consider a person in society responsible for their own actions. And as Nas begins to leave, he offers some final words of wisdom to the child. Always try to rise above and always watch out for Jake which is a code word for the police. Left some jewels in his skull that he could sell if he chose. Nas is talking about jewels of wisdom in the form of advice from an older generation. In these final lines, Nas concludes that the best thing he can do is give Shorty advice that will keep him physically and psychologically healthy. And Nas is giving this advice in the hopes that Shorty might one day pass it on to others when he is in Nas's position. And he ends this verse the same way he ended verses one and two with the two-word phrase, one love. Nas was certainly not the first rapper to tell stories in hip-hop. Slick Rick's children's story made waves in 1989 as a cautionary tale for young men looking to make extra money through crime. And 12 years before Illmatic, in 1982, Melly Mel shattered hip-hop stereotypes at the time by telling a similar story on The Message. But whereas those stories are essentially fables with very clear-cut morals, this verse doesn't seem to provide us with anything like that. In fact, after a first listen, we may just feel a sense of hopelessness. After all, neither Nas nor Shorty can fix the schools, or the prisons, or the crack epidemic. 
And it's entirely likely that both characters will eventually wind up either dead or in jail. But that's not the entire story, because we haven't talked about the song's title yet, One Love. This phrase most likely comes from Jamaica, and it was first popularized in America by the Jamaican political activist Marcus Garvey. Here's a clip of Garvey giving a speech in Harlem in 1924. Remember that we live, work, and play for a binding racial hierarchy whose only natural, spiritual, and political limits shall be God and Africa at home and abroad. With one, with God's dearest blessings, I leave you for a while. One love. Brothers and sisters, Marcus, Messiah, Harvey. Although Garvey originally intended the phrase to basically promote racial separatism, its meaning would eventually change, thanks mainly to Jamaican singer Bob Marley and his 1965 song by the same name. Although some took offense to Marley's reinterpretation, the phrase would eventually come to signify unity among all people, regardless of race or religion. In 1986, the Brooklyn-based hip-hop trio Houdini had a minor hit with their song also called One Love. If you haven't heard it before, the chorus may sound a bit familiar. And here's Nas himself, talking about how he noticed the phrase being used as a common sign-off on letters to and from prisoners. I was a rap, super rap fan, and, and, and Houdini one love and and was uh really really inspirational um but writing one love my my record was it, it came from um you know friends of mine he was locked up and i just started started noticing everybody was putting one love at the end you know it was like unity together you know and um never forget that that's what it was about during that time everybody's talking about one love keeping the unity and then when you hear the bob marley one you go, wow. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's about realness. And it is within the title of the song that we begin to understand that this story does have a moral. And it's not the simple straighten-up kid moral that hip-hop fans were used to in the early 90s. Instead, Nas shows us the results of a broken community by humanizing that brokenness. And then he tells us that even in the face of problems that are completely out of our control, problems that seem to dwarf us and distort our sense of reality and make us feel hopeless, we still have a commitment to community and brotherhood. And in the third verse specifically, after he has personified decades of urban decay in the Queensbridge projects, 
he hammers the point home by giving it innocence in the form of a young child. And while the character of Shorty is technically fictional, Nasir Jones is a real person and his childhood struggles were very real and arguably more disturbing than Shorty's struggles. Although Illmatic's sales were initially somewhat disappointing, by the end of the 90s it was widely considered an indisputable classic album. Even to this day, it remains the pinnacle of Nas's career, and he typically performs nearly the entire album on his live sets. So, in one sense, the third verse of One Love is a story about empowering young people to elevate themselves out of overwhelming, oppressive circumstances. But in another sense, it was Nasir Jones's own way of doing exactly that for himself. Anatomy of a Verse is created by me, Max Maples, in Brooklyn, New York. Next time, we're going to talk about Texas legend Pimp C's simple but powerful verse on the song Big Pimpin'. This episode is dedicated to Willie Graham, a.k.a. Ill Will. Thanks for listening. Here's a summary of the whole shit. Sometimes I sit back with a Buddha sack Minds in another world Thinking how can we exist through the facts Written in school textbooks, bibles, etc Fuck a school lecture, the lies get me vexed uh. So I be ghost from the projects I take my pen and pad for the weekend Hitting L's while I'm sleeping A two-day stay, you may say I need a time alone to relax my dome No phone left and not at home You see the streets have me stressed something terrible Fucking with the corners, have a brother up in Bellevue Or H... Hit with numbers from 8 to 10 A future in a maximum state pit is grim So I comes back home Nobody's out but shorty do I'm rolling two fillies together In the bridge we call him He said Nas Niggas Kobe busting off the roof So I wear bulletproof and pack a black tray deuce He inhaled so deep Shut his eyes like he was sleep Started coughing When I peeked to watch me pee He sat back like the Mac My army suit was black I was chilling on the corner Where he pumped his loose cracks Took the L when he passed it This little bastard Keeps me blasted and talks mad shit I told him don't let niggas fool him Cause when the pistol blows I want to murder beat him Tough luck when niggas are Family's fucked up Could've caught your man But didn't look when you bucked up Mistakes happen So take heed Never bust up But the crowd catch him solo Shorty's laugh was cold-blooded As he spoke so foul Only 12 trying to tell me That I like my style Then I rose Wiping the blunt's ass From my clothes and froze Only to blow the earth smoke Through my nose and toe My little man I'm a ghost I bros Left some juice he can sell if he chose Words of wisdom from Nas Try to rise up above Keep an eye out for Jake Shorty Why? One love One love Damn, my man draws. <laughs>